Today we are having um, two, our two leaders for the GES Center discuss the ethical dimensions of CRISPR applications in agriculture and the environment. And we're going to have a very interactive um, colloquium today. We're going to have um, a nice presentation and then we'll um, have breakout rooms where we'll do a discussion exercise, which will be explained. Um, and then we'll come back together and have a larger group discussion. Um, but I'll give a very brief introduction of Fred and Jennifer. I assume most people who have signed on and are aware of the GS Center know who they are. Um, but Fred is a distinguished uh, professor in entomology. Jennifer Kuzma is a good night um, foundation distinguished professor in the social sciences and together they co-direct the Genetic Engineering and Society Center here at NC State. And um, with that, I'll let Jennifer get started and I hope you guys enjoy the discussion today. Great, can everybody see my slides? Wonderful. Um, well, today we're gonna to be talking about the ethics of non-human heritable um, genome uh, editing. And Fred and I are gonna be leading the discussion. And just to kind of tee up what our goals are today is that Fred and I are not necessarily authorities on ethical reasoning, uh, ethical analysis, or moral philosophy. We have both, of course, dabbled in that, but um, we're not, you know, the experts in this topic. So the goal is more to spark discussion among GS colloquium participants about the ethical dimensions of gene editing in non-human animals in preparation for some of our future colloquium speakers, and then also to just enhance our reflection about these ethical issues in our GES um, community. So we're relying on the collective expertise and wisdom of our community for this particular uh, colloquium. A secondary goal is to get uh, people to know each other better in the colloquium. We've been you know, remote now for almost two years, primarily remote, and um, just a chance for you to join a breakout group and, and introduce each other and get to know each other better as you're talking about these issues. So I'd like to tee up the discussion with just a little bit about um, ethical systems and ethical frameworks and the way that we can think about the ethical issues associated with non-human animal um, uh, gene editing or genome editing. So the first thing is, you know, kind of this, uh, this distinction between values and, and ethics. And values are really the things that matter to us as individuals, groups, or societies, or cultures, and they're beliefs about how we ought to behave, um, but they're more at the individual level, whereas ethics is kind of a more shared philosophy that guides the way that values are practiced, or a system of analyzing or thinking about a right um, action or a wrong action or an ethical or a less ethical action. So in, I, I teach um, ethics in public administration, and so I'm using this book um, that, from Savara, who used to actually be a professor at NC State. Um, it's called The Ethics Primer for Public Administrators. Um, but it's really applicable, this framework, and the way that he talks about ethics to, um, uh, to the subjects that we're going to be talking about today. And so he talks about kind of four different ethical frameworks or traditions by which we can think about the issues, um, one being a duty-based kind of ethical framework. And this is often the result of your position, whether you're a public administrator or a scientific 
researcher or a member of a family or a community or some other in some other leadership um, or professional position. And a lot of professions have these codes of ethics. So you can think about duty-based ethics at the professional level in that regard. You know, what are the codes and norms of the scientific community, of scientists, of academics, of government administrators, et cetera? A second framework is based more on principle-based ethics or deontology. Um, and these are kind of fundamental truths um, or principles that we uphold without um, really reference to necessarily what we think of costs and benefits or consequences. And then, of course, something that we're a lot of us are familiar with, the third tradition is more of a consequence-based ethical or utilitarian, we're often um, thinking of in this regard. So what are the benefits to society or the good, greatest good for the greatest number of people? And then finally, the fourth is kind of a more virtue ethics framework or the characters that we should embody and practice as citizens, as people and qualities that define what a good person is and how he or she or they may act. So those are kind of the frame, four frameworks that Savara talks about. So just a little bit more, again, duty-based ethics um, on the position that we occupy and so we have duties, though, to a lot of different groups in society, not just to our profession or um, our agency or our organization, but also to our, our personal relationships, our family, um, our friends, also on a broader level, citizens of our community and of our nation. And then really at the very broadest level to humanity and, and, and to our legacy and, and writ large to the world. So often it's important to point out that sometimes our duties um, conflict and they lead to ethical dilemmas. Like for example, there might be something that your organization is telling you to do from a duty-based perspective, but yet it doesn't sit well with you as a member of a community, for example. So that's just one example of kind of how conflicts can arise from the different duties you have in these different roles. And so just very quickly, the eight duties of a, this is just an example of one duty-based framework for public servants. And I think in academe at a public university, we are all public servants. So for example, put the public interest over our personal and sometimes our organizational interest, display a service and a commitment to serve, a service orientation, uh, procedural fairness. Uh, for public administrators, we have to follow the law exercise fiduciary responsibility, support the democratic process, honestly communicate, and then be responsive to our superiors, but also to fully examine options. So that's the Savara's take on the duties of public servants, but you might think about these duties in your own profession or your own organization. So the second framework, again, is a principle-based framework. And this is one that we are familiar with in the context of more bioethics, which um, has um, a lot of relevance to the issues associated with non-human genome editing. And these are principles that are right or wrong in a more universal sense. And it, the focus is not necessarily on the outcome, again, of the decision or act, but in seeing one's obligation to these principles and in adhering, adhering to them. Now, I should mention that this principle-based framework is distinguished from duty-based ethics, but they often overlap. Um, and for example, one overlap in the face of like public administration is that we have these principles in the constitution that we're supposed to uphold, 
um, that we, we value. For example, like freedom um, to exercise religion, freedom of speech, right to assemble, equal protection under the law, uh, no cruel or unusual punishment, um, and no deprivation of life, liberty, or process without um, due process under the law. So these are both kind of duty-based frameworks that public servants have, but they also are principles that we uphold really. Um, so this is an example of how a duty-based framework and a principle-based framework intersects. And just a note in talking about cultural differences in the US tends to place a higher priority to autonomy and individual rights more so than other cultures or nations. And we can see that taking place with the pandemic. And then the bioethics principles that are often um, referred to in the literature and that bioethicists use are autonomy. So respect for persons that humans should not be means, um, are not means to an end, and to the right to make free choices about your body. And one can think about this bioethics principle in the context of genome editing and, and genome edited products. Uh, Beneficence, which is the obligation to contribute to welfare generally and to focus on things that are doing more good than not. And to require positive steps to help and not merely avoiding harm. Whereas non-maleficence is the obligation not to inflict harm on other persons. So if you think of medical, you know, do the least harm, right? Or the, the medical oath that people take, do no harm. And then justice is, is super important um, for bioethics and the distribution of health and healthcare in a fair and equitable manner. So a lot of these bioethics principles have been translated into genetically engineered products by a lot of different scholars. Um, if you're interested in some of my work in this area, I've used these principles for both gene drives and for GMOs and, and there's citations on the bottom of the slides, but many people have used these these bioethical principles to think about genome editing and genome edited products. Now, there are some problems with the principle-based approach um, in that you know, sometimes it's hard to adhere to all of these at the same time. And there, the principles should be used in concert with each other, not in isolation. And if one or more are violated, that should be minimal. So sometimes it's, it's difficult to respect autonomy while still upholding justice, for example. So there's not often a hierarchy of a hierarchy of principles, and it's really dependent on the context of the ethical dilemma. And there's little guidance for proceeding when the four principles cannot all be upheld. And then probably the framework that we're most um, familiar with, which is consequence-based or utilitarian. Um, and that's a really kind of comfortable tradition for uh, scholarship in academe in thinking about uh, these issues with technology and public policy. Um, and it tends to be a very com comfortable tradition for people in economics and public policy and scientific thinking. So often we're when we disagree about um, a particular ethical issue associated with genetically engineered products, sometimes it's because we're using these different traditions. Um, whereas some of us are taking more of a, a, a principle-based approach where others may be taking a more consequence-based approach. And so Savara brings up the question, does this tradition suggest that the ends justify the means? Well, yes and no. I mean, it depends on, on what you consider in a consequence-based framework and what you consider the ends. One might think of a consequence of maximizing justice, for example. So 
So it doesn't always mean that the ends justify the means. Um, and this overlaps with principle-based ethics as well. And then finally, virtue ethics, which are the characters that we want to uphold to be a virtuous person. And these also intersect with our duties as well. And so the Josephson report on the six pillars of character, I quite like this for talking about virtue ethics and that our pillars of character, trustworthy, respect, being respectful, um, having a responsibility to society, upholding fairness, um, taking a caring based approach and, and being a good citizen. And so the idea with virtue ethics is that the more you practice the things, the more you become these things. And it's a virtuous circle and it feeds back who we are, we do, and we become. And it becomes a character is a person's pattern of behavior, habits of action. So you can see here where uh, the trustworthiness of the scientist might be something that you might consider for genome edited products, um, respect for consumers or respect for others, responsibilities, et cetera. So this is kind of the model. And again, these four frameworks kind of intersect and they're not in isolation. And so when we think about a particular case study in genome editing, which Fred is gonna talk about kind of four case studies that we can sink our teeth into, we can think about them in these four different ways, but also at the intersection of these four different ways and how our duties um, intersect with our virtues and the principles that we uphold, as well as the greatest good for the, for the greatest number of people. Um, ethics is a very complicated area, and there are not necessarily clear right or wrong answers for many. So we wanted to frame up this particular colloquia more as a discussion um, in thinking about these traditions than as, you know, talking about them. So I'll turn it over to Fred right now. Great. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. So uh, what we're going to ask you to do is for uh, four case studies, and we're going to put you in breakout groups to discuss uh, some questions related to those case studies in terms of ethics, right? So uh, what are some of the ethical issues associated with the case itself? What are the frameworks to consider with the ethical issues? What are some of the ethical dilemmas posed by the case? And what are the duties of the actors? Uh, you know, what are the dilemmas they're facing, as Jennifer was pointing out, with these different kind of approaches? Um, and um, let's see, not being able to forward the slide. Oh, there it goes. Okay, so I do want to say for the students who are, have been very interested in um, CRISPR uh, editing of humans, that we're not really experts on the human side. But we feel like it's very uh, important to consider the non-human genetic engineering and see how that relates to what's happening in terms of making decisions in terms of human gene editing. So as I uh, said, you're going to be put into breakout groups randomly. So you're not going to know right now whether you're going to be in case study one, two, three, or four. But I'll go through these case studies and you'll have this information available to you while you're in your breakout groups. And when you're in your breakout groups, um, somebody will have, to, it would be good for you to all introduce yourselves. Uh, I mean, as Jennifer said, part of the idea of this whole thing is to get people to know each other and especially to get to know the undergraduates who are interested in this. And uh, as you start, somebody needs to be the person who's going to come back after the 20 minutes in the breakout sessions and talk about what you discussed and what kind of uh, 
responses you have to those questions. Okay, Jennifer, do you wanna add anything to what I just said? No, that sounds great. Okay, so let me go through these um, case studies. So um, as you know, if you know anything about agriculture, you know, cows and especially bulls have horns and this can be problematic uh, under some circumstances and often uh, young um, cows are dehorned and uh, this is done physically and can cause, you know, some people would say cruelty to the animal. Uh, there is a breed of uh, cows that does not have horns and people have genetically looked to see what leads to them not having horns and actually a single gene can be changed to make a regular cow become hornless. And so this was done um, and um, this should prevent that pain for the young uh, cows. Um, but then the question is, what are the ethical issues with this? So researchers uh, published an article on this and wanted to move this forward, uh, but they didn't really report everything in the article that they published, uh, including the fact that there were some reproductive abnormalities in their um, animals that they produced. And also they didn't see any off-target effects of the genetic engineering. But when some FDA scientists later looked at the data on the genomes more closely, they found that there were uh, genes entered into the uh, chromosomes of those cattle that came from bacteria and other uh, parts of the material that was being used for doing the genome editing. So it wasn't just the gene. And out of the 26 embryos, only two of them survived, or out of the 14 pregnancies, only two. Uh, the idea that this would be also for, you know, these uh, cows would be a new breed that would be used for milk and uh, meat, possibly. Uh, they're not cleared uh, by the FDA yet for this. Um, this new finding that they didn't report uh, on this not being just the single perfect uh, single change in that one gene uh, put a, a bit of a kibosh on the whole thing. But the question is, you know, what are the ethical dilemmas here and, and what are the things that you would need to consider if you were doing this kind of work? All right, so uh, case number two is another genome editing here of uh, pigs. And I think some of you may be aware of a recent uh, the first man that received a heart from a genetically altered pig. And this is very interesting because the work started way back uh, in the turn of the millennia. Uh, and there was a paper published in 2003 uh, aiming at developing a pig that could be used for, you know, used for organs in humans. And one of the things that was done with those pigs was to uh, knock out a gene that led to production of this alpha-gal sugar um, in pigs. It's a, it's a sugar that's produced or a carbohydrate that is produced in most mammals except for monkeys and humans and such. And because uh, humans don't have uh, these proteins, there's a difference in the immune response to them. And indeed, um, people who, uh, get bitten by specific ticks uh, can have an even stronger response to that that uh, actually could cause uh, mortality. So this work was actually being done early on to uh, create pigs that could be used for organ transplants. And the genes, the pigs that were actually used for the organ transplant 
had at least nine genes that were altered. Uh, but this one gene um, is actually this gene that re leads to this allergenic response. And a company um, actually developed pigs that um, did not uh, produce that sugar. And they're called gal-safe pigs. So there are questions about doing that with the pigs and about how you would bring those to markets. Um, as mentioned here, because of the way the pig is engineered, you couldn't use uh, antibiotics, neomycin with them. So we'd like you to discuss here, what are the ethics of developing a pig that would be used for food in, the, in this way? But one of the things that to end with is that Indeed, they, the FDA has sort of looked at it in terms of people eating these pigs and wh whether they would be safe, but they haven't looked at the people who have potential allergic response because they had been bitten by ticks. So we'd like you in that group to discuss these issues. The third case study is about uh, is more general and looking towards the future. These things are not here yet, but this is genome engineering of pets. So just to start out, you know, with heritable human genome engineering, right? There's some fuzzy demarcation between engineering to diminish disabilities and engineering aimed at physical or mental enhancement. And that seems to be a line that people talk about in teams of what is ethical to do and what isn't. So to move it away from the human engineering, you know, in the future, we could engineer dogs uh, to have less, less hip dysplasia or we could uh, have them have less ability to bark or maybe without canine teeth. And cats could be engineered uh, to not have scent glands or claws. So when we consider these things with pets, what are the different frameworks? How do they relate to what is ethical and what may not be ethical? And down below here, this is from the Humane Society talking about what declawing is like for a cat. Um, and then asking that kind of question of if you were declawing physically or declawing genetically, is there some difference ethically in doing that kind of thing? And fine, this is um, the, um, the, that should be number four, is uh, the case study of um, de-extinction. So there have been proposals to cause de-extinction of the woolly mammoth. Uh, that's been extinct for over 4,000 years. And with this kind of general idea that somehow if you could release them in Arctic areas, they would be uh, good in terms of global climate change. Um, and this can be done in two ways. One, by using Asian elephants and adding genes one at a time kind of way to make them more like woolly mammoths. The Asian elephants are very similar genetically to the woolly mammoth or by direct cloning of frozen DNA, okay? But there are other proposals to cause de-extinction of species that recently went extinct, uh, like the Pyrenean ibex that died out in 1999. So its niche or whatever is, has been there. So, you know, what factors would you need to examine in these three cases? You know, one with frozen cloned DNA, one with moving genes into the Asian elephant, and then with uh, Pyrenees ibex, or even the question of uh, recreating uh, varieties that have died out, like a 
some kind of cattle variety that we don't have anymore. All right, so those are the um, case studies. And uh, this again are the case, the questions to consider for these case studies. So uh, please take a look at these for a minute before we wind up going ready to uh, get into the breakout groups. Okay, it looks like we're all coming back to the room. And I think most of us are back now. So I hope you at least had a little time to get to know each other and a little time to start discussing the ethical issues with the cases. Um, so should we, Fred, do you wanna begin with case one? Yeah, I think, let's, do we have two groups that did case one? Okay, so um, I'm gonna, because I was in that one, I know that Amanda was, uh, going to report back from one of the case one groups. Hi, yes, I'm happy to kick us off with case one. So with the hornless cattle scenario, um, our group was talking about uh, really what is the goal of developing these hornless cattle? That's kind of um, an initial thing to be considering in the first place. It could be for animal rights um, reasons, you know, so dehorning can be really uh, problematic for the cattle. Um, so that's kind of at the beginning of the chain, but there might also be issues in the process. So one of the points brought up in this case study is that the FDA was able to find bacterial RDNA that the um, company who developed this engineered cattle did not find. And that is kind of a discrepancy in the process of how we evaluate um, what comes into what's going to come out as a product at the end of the day. Um, and one point we were discussing there was, uh, did the company really do their due diligence in looking for those um, sequences of DNA? And, and maybe there should be a standard way to do that so that this isn't um, an issue that is conflated by financial um, you know, uh, biases and things like that from the company's end. Okay, Great anybody in our group want to add to that? Okay, the second group that dealt with case one. Yeah, so that was us. Um, we spent uh, the beginning of the conversation kind of talking about like looking at the animal and saying that like farmers have basically said that the dehorning process isn't necessarily like painful, but it does cause stress on the animal uh, and it is expensive, but like really looking at like who does this actually benefit? And I think my group kind of concluded that the biggest benefit was the farmer, a very specific farmer. I was like, uh, with just like the agricultural, like looking at like the US and the majority of agriculture. Uh, but when we started talking a little bit more about like the ethics, uh, we actually talked about, is there like an obligation to like help this with the animal or by dehorning and making it easier for the farmer to do this, is there a bigger picture where we're actually like exasperating uh, climate change and sustainability issues by continuing to encourage like livestock and cattle and all of these cows that help like increase greenhouse gases and all these other issues. Um, <clears throat> so the bigger picture for us was looking at like, does this actually benefit like society as a whole if we're looking at the bigger picture? And then specifically, we talked a little bit about like, the places where it's hard to grow crops uh, in different areas uh, and where you would actually need cattle uh, for livestock and for food as like a main source, those are the type of cattle that would actually need their horns. 
Uh, so it would actually be beneficial for them to keep that. Uh, and I think that's pretty much where we capped off towards the end. But just looking at the bigger picture of like, does this actually help the planet uh, in the end by continuing to encourage agriculture and cows? So uh, if anyone in my group wants to add anything else, I, I think I try to capture it the best I could. All right, just to stay on time, I guess, Jennifer, we should just go through all the cases. Then if there's sure. a few minutes later, we can recap. Absolutely. All right. So group two, Croak, case study two. Uh, I think our, our group, uh, Salvador and I, um, we, were, we were talking about uh, mainly two things uh, uh, or three things, I would, I would say, like, the implications uh, in the health and the implications for the agricultural sort of like production systems and those those two things are important because uh, pigs were sort of like followed or designed to sort of like accomplish both purposes but according to the information that we had it's like the FDA seemed to be uh, could improve the way in which assesses transparency and that could sort of like um, increase um, how the public reacts to these types of uh, studies and maybe it can change uh, or it can sort of like increase the conversation about uh, whether should we or why should we uh, engineer animals for production purposes or for health purposes. So those types of things are also important. Uh, and we were also talking about uh, religion uh, because there were some concerns about uh, products that are derived from uh, meat, uh, pig meat, and in some some cultures that might be yeah, something uh, of of controversial. So that's also important to acknowledge that, especially if we are talking about individuals and communities, right? So that can change according to different cultures. Uh, and I think that's that's all what we covered so far. Is there a second group that covered this second case? Yes, so our report for that second group, essentially the initial question about um, what some of the ethical issues that could arise are the pigs example, um, one of the key points was that whichever way, when you are using animal organs for humans, a life would definitely be sacrificed one way or the other. And even with the approval, in order for the pigs to even be consumed as well, it also amounts to a certain life, even if it's animal life being sacrificed. So that's one of the ethical issues that came up. And then there was the point also, like what Sebastian mentioned, um, religion to a certain extent, humans trying to play God was one of the other ethical issues that came up. And then the possible issues with antibiotic resistance that may come up. Um, and then with regards to the framework to consider, we felt this was gravitating towards more like the utilitarian approach as to the greater good for the larger populace. So, so more like the kind of the rule-based principle approach in terms of how this was panning out. And then um, again, the issues with antibiotics and the possible non-assessment of that in the very short term came up. Um, in terms of future ethical dilemma, then the point was that as more information becomes available, uh, positions on this may change. Um, for now, issues about 
um, allergy problems may not be seen now, but then going into the future, that may come up. And then the final bit about duties, that there was a point about the need for a certain responsibility when it comes to safety. But then th there was a thinking that, well, human lives have to be saved. And if animals are helping provide that, it's an alternative and there's a certain duty on the part of scientists and all to help save human lives. So that's a duty that gets taken care of in that regard. Thanks. All right, thanks. I think we're gonna to have to keep moving forward because we're gonna run out of time. So uh, let's go to the third case. Hey there, I'll speak for my group. So for case site three, as I was mentioned, um, so ours was the genome editing of, of uh, pets. And I people mentioned this idea of um, playing God. And I think one very nuanced way we got that was, what does it mean for if we, for example, remove the bark from a dog? Is that a dog anymore? And that's something that you could say is a bit different about genome editing that you don't normally see in like traditional breeding methods for pets. I don't imagine people are trying to traditionally breed like barks out of dogs, for example. Um, other ethical dilemmas relate to that was the idea of who is this benefiting? Um, are we actually helping the pet here in this case? when we're making these edits or changes, or are we just doing it because the owners uh, want it for their own personal reasons, which might be justified in certain cases. We didn't really get into that. Like decline a uh, cat through gene editing or something might be less painful, for example, because they're just born without claws. But does that really help the cat anyway, or is it just for the benefit of their owner? And can we really say then that's a virtuous or a very good ethical choice to make there? Um, it, that's all I can remember that we talked about in our group that we covered. If other group members want to jump in at anything, uh, if we have time to. Okay, how about a second group on case three? Yeah, um, so our group kind of talked about that same kind of value-based ethics of like, is it really necessary or is this more for just an aesthetic? Um, there was also a talk of uh, obligation through ethics. So kind of a social equity almost. If if we're just doing this for the aesthetic of the animal, could that, you know, the funding and everything like that be pushed towards something else that might be more beneficial, such as like human health and diseases. Um, and then kind of a duty-based based ethics is like, if you have the market at the center and, and you have this demand um, for this more aesthetically pleasing pet, like, should we do it? Um, is it absolutely necessary? Um, and then I think it was just kind of reiterated what the previous group said as well. Okay, great. So let's go on to case four. Um, I can speak for the first group um, really quickly. So, you know, we talked about duty in terms of bringing back extinct species. So we talked about um which as people talk about, you know, which species do we, how do we choose which species to bring back? For example, we could bring back the mammoth or do we choose other species from that time period that could end extinct? So there's some dilemma in terms of like, how do we choose which species should be brought back? Um, then people talked about um, from the duty framework, um, there's duty towards society in terms of restoring some habitat or climate change things, but we will also have duty towards the organism that is brought back. So we talked about how uh, mammoths, for example, will we just bring back a single mammoth or will we be um, responsible for providing a mammoth with social structure to have a group of mammoths um, and just providing a life worth living. Uh, we also talked about um, 
you know, the group wouldn't have low genetic diversity. So we should be responsible in some ways for um, what happens to the animals that we bring back. Will, will they be able to cope with the environmental change, diseases and such? Um, we also talked about um, how such uh, de-extinctions might affect people who now occupy those areas. So how would, for example, bringing back mammoths affect people who now live in the tundra? How would that will be affected with that? Um, and I think I'll stop at that. Um, I'll let the other group um, have some time. A second group on case four. Just ended up being Ramon and I, and I was reassigned from another group about halfway through. So we kind of barely got underway in talking about it, but um, really largely what Sumi uh, articulated nicely. So I would say, unless, unless Ramon has anything to add. Okay, Jennifer. Yeah, so this is, a, I think, a great start to um, thinking about these ethical issues in the different ways. And I, I think you may have noticed as people were reporting back how there were overlaps between the four frameworks. You know, we started talking about duties and then switched over to consequences. And I think this, this colloquium served its purpose to get us thinking about the ethical issues in these ways, in these different ways, but also to see where those frameworks overlap, but also where they may lead you to conflicting um, answers as to what to do in a particular situation or what would be the right um, action. Um, so I want to thank you all for you know, engaging in this. I hope you got to know one, someone new, and maybe that you thought about one of these case studies in a slightly different way. And I just want to thank you for kind of coming into this cold and reporting back and being a great part of the discussion, because you did not expect when you turned on your computer to have to go into breakout groups and discuss ethical issues. But we really want to thank you for doing that with, um, with, um, with uh, great um, enthusiasm and, and, and an earnest um, job of doing that. And so um, thanks again. And I don't know, Fred, if you want to add anything to that. No, I, I think this is great. It was good to get an uh, icebreaker in some sense for people to meet each other uh, as well. So uh, thanks for participating. All right, we're at the one o'clock point. So I guess we'll thank everybody and uh, see well, you next oh, week. Oh, hold on, <laughs> just one oh, more oh, thing. Oh, oh, oh. One more thing. Thank you, Fred and Jennifer. This was uh, very fun and engaging. I just wanted to say that this coming semester, we already have scheduled people who will be coming to talk about the extinction, as well as some human medical um, gene editing. So this discussion today will be applicable to other colloquia in the future. So, okay. Thanks for coming and participating, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.